This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by Language Blend, the new best way to learn Spanish. Language Blend focuses on what you actually need to live and get by abroad with daily one-on-one lessons, a dedicated texting partner. It's like living in a Spanish-speaking country without ever leaving home. Go to languageblend.com for more information. You're at, you're at dinner and you're just like, you can turn your house into your car, into your, <laughs> into your passive private, low tax, low tax. And they're just like, what? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I didn't make for the best dinner conversation, that's for sure. I, I read the room on that. Welcome back to the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. My guest today is Danny V from wealthsquared.com. And I really noticed Danny on Twitter dropping some of the most valuable threads I'd ever seen about online buying businesses and uh, the tax system and stuff like that. Just very detailed and nuanced. And his website as well, just tons of awesome guides. And Danny, welcome. Hey, Vance. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Um, yeah, man, very excited to share whatever knowledge I can. And, and thanks for the warm intro. I uh, hope my threads aren't um, overwhelming for folks, but just trying to share whatever little knowledge I have. Dude, it's it's uh, like like I said, some of the best threads I've ever seen in terms of just deep value and really kind of getting into the ins and outs of, of different programs. Um, I thought maybe you could just explain your background uh, as an entrepreneur and yeah, just a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I started um, along a pretty traditional path out of undergrad. I went to UCLA, graduated and started in investment banking in, in um, Los Angeles for maybe three years, um, worked on all sorts of fun projects, got a sense for what, you know, corporate life looked like. Um, worked a lot. Um, if anybody knows the profession, uh, 80 hour weeks were good weeks. And so quickly kind of, um, just learned the, perhaps the downsides of a more traditional corporate life. Um, in maybe 2016, 2017, I, uh, had transitioned out of investment banking and was more into just a, a tech role, uh, specifically for, um, a uh, marketplace website. And when I was there, I started to dabble in the idea of building a side hustle um, and specifically uh, something where I could, um, you know, be able to work on it five, 10 hours a week in my spare time and create passive income. And one thing led to another and I found the Amazon FBA fulfilled by Amazon model. Um, And I'll save all the the details, um, but the Long story short is I, I went on to uh, build a business in the baby category over a course of about four to five years. And uh, in early 2022, was able to sell that business um, for a multiple seven-figure exit, which allowed me to step away from uh, the traditional nine-to-five corporate career path. Um And on the other side of selling that business, I've since uh, been active in buying and selling um, other websites, uh, specifically some SaaS businesses and have taken an extensive look at other content sites. 
And, uh, and now I'm just sharing about kind of that journey. I'm sharing about the journey of trying to pay less tax on um, very high W-2 income, um, very high business income as well. I find that that sort of knowledge is hard to come by. And if you ask a CPA, you will drown in the details of it. So I think there's just a need for people to kind of share about um, experiences with uh, as a high earner, how to mm -hmm. keep more of the income, convert it into more passive sources. And, and so that's kind of the reason for Twitter and for what I'm doing with Well Squared. But um, yeah, that's kind of my background in a nutshell. So that's the question, I guess. How can you lower your taxes as a high earner W-2 guy? Yeah, happy to. I, yeah, I, I'll focus on the real estate side because I think... Um, one of the framings that really resonated for me and changed the way I thought about taxes and the IRS and the tax code is rather than thinking about the tax code as a strict black and white set of rules, it's really just a set of incentives that when followed correctly, allow you to align yourself with the government, in our case, the US government. And if you invest your dollars behind the things that they want you to invest in, there are quite a lot of benefits that the tax code gives you. And so, um, you know, taking the real estate professional status as one that has been very eye-opening um, and effective over the last handful of years, uh, what you can basically do in um, if you qualify as a real estate professional is you can take losses, taxable losses from your real estate activities and use those losses to reduce or offset your W-2 or what the tax code considers to be active income. Um, qualifying for as a real estate professional is kind of the first part in the process. And there's really two ways that you can qualify. One is you have to spend at least 750 hours over the course of a year actively managing your real estate properties. So kind of think of it like, you know, managing tenants or whatever else a property manager would do. And you have to spend more time in real estate than in any other activity. And so this for us was effective. And when I say us, I, I mean my wife and I, because what it allowed us to do was have my wife, who didn't have a full-time job, um, be a real estate professional. She managed our properties. She you know, accrued more than 750 hours. And we were able to use that status and losses from the depreciation on our properties to offset my high active income earned through my job and earned through uh, the Amazon business that we had. There's yeah, a ton there. Crazy. I know. I'll that's pause. Crazy. So, and, and just to, to try to summarize what that means is when you own a property, you record depreciation on an annual basis that you kind of, you know, based on a formula, right? Yeah. And then yeah. you can take this almost sort of like Im imaginary loss, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so like an imaginary yeah. loss to offset real earned income, like an actual $50,000 of earned income, something like that. You know, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. It, I mean, that's, and I'll, I'll double click on different aspects of it, but you're, you're exactly right. Um, the way it works is when you buy a property, um, you often use leverage, you use, you know, a mortgage or debt to be able to buy that. But you're allowed to depreciate or expense or write off all kind of the same thing, um, the value of the building over the course of traditionally 27 and a half years for residential property. Um, what you're 
you know, a, a, another nuance to the strategy here is that um, you run a cost segregation study, which is mm -hmm. a report where you send an engineer out to the property itself and they classify the various aspects of the building between five, 15 and 27 and a half year property. And so an example I've used before is, you know, if you think about like the carpet in a building, it, your carpet's going to wear out before 27 and a half years are up. And so the engineer allocates carpet to a five year useful life period. Mm -hmm. And so instead of the value of the carpet being depreciated over 27 and a half years, it's actually depreciated over five years. And so the, you know, the engineer does this for every component of a building. And what ends up happening is you have quite a lot of property that's allocated to a, what's called a shorter or more accelerated depreciation timeline. And then it gets even better. And this is where the, you know, jobs, tax cuts, acts, and, and a lot of different legislative changes have kind of made this strategy most effective. But in the year in which you acquire the property and you run the cost segregation study, you can actually depreciate or write off hundred percent of your five and 15 year property. And so what that allows is a significant loss in the year of acquisition, um, again, all on paper. And that loss, as we just mentioned, can offset other sources of income as long as you qualify as a real estate professional. Mm -hmm. And so to do this, you have to spend more time doing real estate related activities than non real estate activities, right? Correct. And so that's where, um, you know, the, the strategy that I highlighted is a hundred percent contingent on my wife, um, you know, not having a full-time job. If both spouses or just, if it's just you and you're an individual and you don't have a spouse and you have a full-time job, you absolutely cannot take advantage of this. It will never pass scrutiny. Um, and if you're married and both partners are full-time working, then again, this, this is not the right strategy. So it has to just kind of work for your situation. I don't know if we have time to go all up through the, the short-term rental tax strategy, um, but that is a related but separate um, approach where you can in some ways get around the limitation of having more than any your time spent on real estate. Um, but again, I honestly, I, man, I, I would love if we could talk about short term <laughs> rental because uh, I think as digital nomads, uh, it is pretty relevant because we like to do things such as buy international property in maybe a couple different countries and mm. we're there part of the year and then we're renting it out the other part of the year. Yeah, I'm very because, you know, for my my wife and I, we've used the real estate professional designation um the last handful of years i've never actually gone through all of the details on the short-term rental tax strategy um, but in a nutshell it's a very similar process as what i just outlined for you know you know running a cost seg uh, depreciating a large part of the property in the first year that you acquire the short-term rental but in a way you're actually able to designate the short-term rental itself as a separate business activity mm -hmm. as long as you have an average stay at the property of seven days or less and you spend over 100 hours on that property and more than anybody else so those are kind of like the rules and then at that point the way i understand it and again I'm, i should definitely say here multiple times i'm not a cpa uh would never do this on my own without a tax professional guiding me and, and signing off on everything. But 
in theory, my understanding is when you meet those three conditions, then there is a way in which the short-term rental now qualifies as an active activity. And therefore you can use, you know, losses from that activity to offset your W-2 or your earned income. That's sort of the concept in a nutshell, albeit the tax uh, aspects of it are something I would reserve for, for a CPA. And it's so cool that you're unearthing this information for everyone. So we, we, we really uh, respect it. But this one historically came from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or at least they were one of the early proponents of the real estate status. Yeah. And did they did they talk about the short-term rental one as well? Or is that something that's like a newer phenomenon? It's it's way newer. And it's largely just because of the emergence of, you know, Airbnb and VRBO and the uncertainty of, well, is a short-term rental a business or is it a passive rental property, right? That's a, that's a gray area. And so I should say with the short-term rental, you know, strategy to begin with, it's not one, like the real estate professional status has been, I guess you could call litigated or there's been many, many different tax um, kind of opinions that have been given based on prior examples. My understanding is that that's not the same with the short-term rental strategy because, again, this this whole investment class or this whole concept is relatively new, right, like within the last decade or so. And so there's just not as much uh, precedent for it. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find the guy's name. You must know he they they build him as like Robert Kiyosaki's expert CFO or expert accountant. Oh, Tom Wheelwright probably. Tom Wheelwright, of? yes, yes. Yeah, his book's great. That's Tax Free Wealth. It's one of the first ones Tax-free I read wealth. in this in this uh, kind of vein. He definitely doesn't go into the short term rental strategy, but um, certainly goes deep into real estate and the advantages of of real estate investing as a whole. And so would you say a lot of uh, the themes that you touch upon, uh, you got from tax-free wealth and maybe a couple other inspirations? Like who are your big inspirations? Because you've learned a lot of these like really cool niche stuff that not too many people have taught before. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think in order of where I learned things, it started with tax-free wealth, um, Tom Wheelwright and Robert Kiyosaki. I think, you know, you got to his concept is rich dad, poor dad is exceedingly simple, but it's not taught in school and it's not something people think about all the time. So I think, you know, that him writing that book was kind of the start of a lot of things for me. Um, but tax-free wealth was very valuable. Um, and then I worked, uh, with the CPA who I found kind of through that network who was able to sort of fill in a lot of the gaps for me. Right. And, you know, I, I've now been in sort of this world of kind of a higher income, um, allocating profit into real estate. I've used that strategy now for about five years. So I feel a bit more comfortable with just the positives, but also, you know, the drawbacks and, and some of the risks and things that you need to consider as well. And so that's part of the reason I think, you know, I'm more comfortable now sharing just, you know, my experience with others. Um, albeit the other thing I, I've realized is that I, I love CPAs. I think they're obviously so much more knowledgeable about the nuances than I am but it can be really challenging to, you know, get a, a perspective from them that considers, you know, the high level stuff that matters. They'd love to just jump into the details. And so that's where I felt like I could maybe help people just see the forest beyond the trees a bit 
and, um, you know, give an 80-20 view. Yeah, man. I love it. What would you want to talk about? Do you want to talk more about um, some tax stuff or some online business stuff? The internet business stuff is really interesting too. Uh, you said in your profile, building a portfolio of internet businesses and passive investments to 10 million. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think, um, so when I built kind of the Amazon FBA business, um, it was a great experience, tons of learning. Um, I think one of the big insights for me was the challenge of managing cash flow for a inventory based high growth business model. Um, said differently, every dollar of profit that we earned for like three years, we just reinvested into buying more inventory. And <clears throat> I mean, that's a good problem to have. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but at the same time, it's difficult to scale that and uh, do so in a very kind of bootstrapped way. And so, um, you know, coming out of that exit at the beginning of last year, my focus has now really been on buying very capitally light content or SaaS businesses. And um, the first that we were able to buy last year is interestingly kind of um, this really unique, I'm not even sure if it's enterprise B2B SaaS or if it's some other category altogether, but our customers are mainly nonprofits, churches and charities, and we serve them with donation management software, simple solution that is absolutely critical to their day-to-day -day functioning. And we have over 4,500 paying customers with therefore zero, uh, you know, single customer risk and no platform risk. Amazon can't change an algorithm and we lose sales. Amazon can't shut our listing down and, and we have nothing coming in, right? We 100% control the customer relationship. And so that's sort of where my head has evolved, which is now I look for businesses where I see a durability in what they offer. And no matter really what platform does what, we, for the most part, would be okay. And so that's kind of the mindset I'm now applying to um, this micro, you know, online business space where I try to find businesses between on the lower end, about a half million in purchase price up to mm -hmm. four or 5 million. And, uh, that's kind of our sweet spot. Yeah, I get it. So capital light businesses, you have your sweet spot range. It's pretty high. I, I assume you get financing somehow. Yeah. Financing is a great question and it's, um, a really interesting topic. You know, we, um, the most common source of financing, certainly for non-internet businesses, are SBA loans, as you and your audience may know. Um, you know, an SBA loan can cover up to 90% of a purchase price. Um, the obvious drawback of an SBA loan is the personal guarantee portion. So, uh, the, you know, at the end of the day, that, that means that some of your personal assets may be on the line if the business weren't to be successful. Um, but if you find the right business and you understand the risks and feel like you can confidently mitigate those risks, SBA loans are one of the greatest tools and vehicles for wealth creation, right? When you can borrow 90% of a purchase price and, uh, retain all of the upside of the equity, it's a pretty sweet, um, it's a pretty sweet equation. So SBA loans are great. Seller financing is another vehicle that we've used quite a bit. Um, that's just basically where a portion of the purchase price is paid over, 
a two year, three year term, and you share that with the seller, a small interest rate for that delay, that's really effective, especially in kind of smaller deals or with owners who are willing to delay their payment, maybe for tax reasons or whatever it could be. Earnouts. Um, we've mm-hmm. used earnouts in every deal that aligns incentives super well. How long of a earnout schedule do you do? Like how many months or years? Usually we do, it really depends on the business, but we usually don't go past two years. Um, most of the time it's just 12 months, especially if we feel like we just need the seller to engage for, you know, three or six months post sale. So we know what we're getting ourselves into <laughs> before he, you know, uh, checks out. Um, but never more than two years because, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that doesn't really, the seller won't wait that much on an earnout that's not getting paid for three years. So it's not worth it to us. So we usually do 12 to 24 months. And do you try to do it like Warren Buffett style and have the management continue on with the business or do you try to take it over and insert your own management? Yeah, I wish I was as uh, rich as a Warren Buffett <laughs> dealing with multi-million dollar enterprises, but no, we... For the most part, um, I would say the sellers are amenable to staying on and helping us transition. But ultimately, we would look to put in, we'd look to run it ourselves for the most part. And the vision longer term is certainly to hire in uh, specific business unit or CEO type leaders and run it more like a holding company. So that, that is our vision would be to have, you know, let's call it four to five brands, um, with discrete management teams in place that all report into our company. Wow, guys, the audience, I hope you appreciate how much of a range of conversations that Danny V can cover. Like to be able to go from talking about real estate immediately into uh, SaaS deals and we'll even get into like Roth IRAs and stuff like that. Like not, not too many people can cover this much ground. So. Yeah, this is super interesting. Where where was I? You use uh, I'm guessing Empire Flippers a lot. We um, I'll share. I'm yeah happy to share with where we find a lot of our deals. We I think if you're in kind of the the under two to three million dollar range, the best um, sources that I see for internet businesses are Empire Flippers, Acquire.com, formerly Micro Acquire, uh, Quiet Light Brokerage is another good one, and then. Some people have success with Flippa, but, you know, personally haven't used their service too much. But, you know, those are kind of the main marketplace or brokers that we see active in the very, I would call it micro internet space. Once you get past that two to $3 million mark, you start venturing closer to more of the broker deals. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those are a lot harder. There's just so many different small investment banks that are in and out of that space. And it's really difficult to, you know, to, to find them all. Um, but that's sort of what we're navigating now. We're moving more into that. I'd call that lower mark, like still lower market, but not quite micro market. And so that's a little bit more where we're focusing our efforts today. Um, but for most of your audience and for most people with their first deal, I, I think the, the sites I just named are a good place to start. A lot of people are even doing exactly what you're doing it at a private equity scale where private equity funds are buying these businesses. They're going like more and more, like bigger and bigger funds are going more and more down market and they're starting to acquire these e-commerce brands, SaaS. Yeah. They like assemble them and find synergies and stuff like that. So it's becoming a real asset class. Yep. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great intro. And I mean, I think Empire Flippers has a whole 
capital allocation arm, right? Where they're now, I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. this or not. But yeah, it's super interesting, right? Yeah, they fund different operators who then buy three or four different sites from their marketplace and create, you know, a scaled business that they share profits back with investors. And investors are people like you and me and your listeners, right? They're just probably accredited. I'm not sure, but, you know, average investors writing $50,000 checks um, and we're sharing in the upside there. So, yeah, it's a super interesting space. Um, You know, I like it because... I think there's just, here's a framing exercise, and I don't know if this lands or not um, with your listeners, but it resonated for me, which was when you think about a multiple uh, that you place on a business that you buy, if you're a quote unquote micro business, call it under a million dollar purchase price, normally you'll achieve somewhere between a three and a four X multiple, which means if you generate $250,000 of profit, and you get a four multiple for that, you would get a million dollar offer on that. And the way I look at it is, okay, if I buy something for four X, that's a million bucks. And let's assume I use no debt. I just put a million bucks to get this asset that produces 250,000 of cash flow for me. Well, if I just keep that asset flat for one year, my cash on cash return is 25%, which is pretty good. But, you know, you have to be honest, when you compare the risk of that 25% to maybe, you know, an index fund at 7 or 8%, you know, you have to say, okay, well, is that worth it? But what I think where it becomes really interesting for me is when you apply a modest amount of leverage and when you can buy something where you know you can grow it fairly quickly with minimal risk. And so Mm -hmm. when you start to put a little bit of debt on the purchase price and you grow it a conservative 20%, 25%, something like that. Now, as you run the math, you'll start to see cash on cash returns, you know, close to 80, 90, 100% of your investment. And obviously with compounding and with some time, you know, those returns are how you build true wealth. It's how you're able to take $50,000 of capital and create 2 million of capital in three to four years, right? Um, you can't take 50 grand, put it in the stock market and become wealthy. It's, it's not going to happen. You can wait 30, 40 years and do that. Sure. But it's just, it takes too long. So I really believe that this asset class and this opportunity is super compelling for people who, you know, maybe are younger maybe have some money that they can lose or put at risk and want to take a big shot and want to bet on themselves. Right. Um, I think this is just a really compelling opportunity. And, and while I personally like internet businesses, I, I candidly think that this applies to any small business that you feel comfortable enough operating. And that includes a bunch of SMBs that are, you know, boring HVAC companies or whatever it else it is. I think there's opportunities both on the internet and off the internet. Yeah, definitely. Do you know uh, Ace? Ace. No, yeah, why? he's uh, he, he's like a buying online business guy like this, and he talks about both on and offline. Uh, anyway, I kind of had a, a anecdote about that. I was talking to uh, Freddie Lansky, a previous podcast guest, and he knows Ace. Um, and I, I wish I knew Ace's full name. I thought you'd know him, but so my buddy Freddie was saying, like, "Yo, I'm thinking." He already bought a content, a smaller site. Yeah, and he bought a smaller site, pretty low risk, right? 
Yeah. But then he, he, he was talking to Ace and he was like, yo, Ace, I want to do the SBA, lever up, buy a big business and like do something, <laughs> do, do some big boy stuff. And Ace said, I don't know if you're ready, man. Like you're, you're not ready. You know what I mean? Mm, and yeah. so what, what would that mean to be, you know, ready and, and be an operator and, and be sort of a, an educated buyer on one of these deals? That's a good question, man. And I love that you asked that because, you know, candidly, people like myself, other creators online that talk about this, we do make it seem easy. And that's because like, that's sort of the job of the creator is to simplify things. And to a certain extent, it, it's learnable and it's achievable. But at the end of the day, if you don't know what you're doing, you put a lot of risk on the table, right? And you just need to kind of be aware of that. Um, I think realistically, you know, who's the right buyer and for what business is super situational. It, it really just depends on uh, your background and your competency, right? Like if you've been working in SEO for a, a big company, um, you know, multi-million dollar, you know, public company for 10 years, well, you probably are well qualified to assess the risk of a small content site that's 90% reliant on SEO, Google traffic, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say that's probably a smart risk for you specifically. But for somebody else who's been in sales, uh, enterprise sales, and doesn't know a thing about a domain, a hosting company, a blog, none of that, well, then there's quite a lot of risk in you buying a content site if you don't know what you're doing, right? Right. Um, and then coming back to what Empire Flippers is doing, where it's kind of like operator as a service. Yeah. That's interesting, too, if you can put someone in, like put in management and kind of create some sort of incentive program. Yeah. Um, but before yeah. we lost the the thought, so it's uh, Ace Chapman. Okay. He had a program, I think, called the Web Equity Show. He did stuff with Justin Cook and, and Empire Flippers in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Ace Chapman. So he he was always like, in my mind, one of the OGs talking about this a lot. And it's cool that you come from an IB background. Like you you come from a traditional finance background. And I can see how you kind of apply a consistent lens. It's very cool. No, I appreciate it, man. And it is. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is principles you maybe learn in those fields applied at a, a much smaller level. Um, and so I, I, it's just fun. It, you know, it keeps me interested. And I think a lot of other people would, would enjoy it too if they're not familiar with the space. Yeah, I feel like you needed this website, wellsquared.com, just to not go insane because you're like the most. <laughs> you, you couldn't you could you couldn't talk to your buddies about it. They'd just be like, okay, like, yeah. I have no idea. What, I have no idea what's going on here. Yeah, bro, you hit it on the nail right there. I I could, but and everybody found it interesting. But then I just found myself talking too much, and I'm like, I want to meet other people who like. I like you're, at, you're at dinner and you're just like, you can turn your house into your car, into your, <laughs> into your passive private, low tax, low tax. And they're just like, what? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I didn't make for the best dinner conversation. That's for sure. I, I read the room on that. But no, man, I, it's, it's totally true. I, I think that this is fun for the right audience, but not everybody loves talking about it. And are you executing on pretty much all these things? Because it would be a lot to mentally keep track of or... Did you kind of dabble into looking at some of them, but then, you know, you applied the ones that fit your situation best? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, focus is something that I return to quite a lot because I think it's really easy to spread yourself thin. And, you know, I don't know, if, hopefully you can't hear my daughter crying in the background, but uh, we have a nine month old. So just became a father this year. And uh, if you thought you didn't have a lot of time before you had a kid, forget about it. You have way too much time on your hands because once you have a kid, it just goes away. So I've yeah, got... Congratulations, by the way. 
Thanks, man. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, I'm really loving it, but it just means my, you know, addressable hours or productive hours in a week went from maybe 50 or 60 down to like 30, (laughs) realistically. So I'm trying to focus today. I I think how I sort of think about my time is I'd spend about 50%, um, whether it's operating the businesses in our portfolio or looking for other businesses to add to it. It's about half my time. And then I spent about a quarter of my time on the audience building side. That would be, you know, these kind of conversations or writing a thread on Twitter or my weekly newsletter. And then I spend the final quarter on, I guess, kind of portfolio management, like personal capital allocation. That could be like learning stuff about tax. That could be investing in commercial real estate deals. Um, Tomorrow, I'm talking to some syndicator about investing in ATM machines literally never heard of it in my life and just got connected to this guy and I'm going to learn about it tomorrow. So that's kind of how I break up my time. albeit it, it, it ebbs and flows a bit. Do you think the buying online business is, is one of the things you're most excited about or how do you think about like allocating to tech stuff versus real estate to, and sort of diversifying your portfolio? Yeah. So for me, I know I've, I realized at a young age that I'm naturally pretty risk averse might sound counterintuitive based on this conversation so far, but realistically, I think I've, I've taken quite measured risk over the last seven, eight years. And, um, that's mainly because of my personality, right? I, I just, I wouldn't have, you know, I, I don't think I mentioned this, but we ran that side, that Amazon business for five years, multiple seven figures in, in revenue. And I never quit my day job. I didn't leave my day job until we sold it. Um, and so I think I really do take a pretty conservative approach to things. So for me, most of my capital, personal capital, um, is invested in commercial real estate, a couple of residential properties. We still have, um, you know, treasuries, frankly, with the yield that they're offering right now, um, and just other sources to create passive income that I know is coming into my bank account, you know, once a month or once a quarter. And that passive income, having that be equal to, or in, in our case, slightly above um, the costs that you know we need to support our life, that provides me a bit of kind of that financial security that mm-hmm. enables me to take bigger risk with you know online business buying or things like that, where clearly a higher upside, but also you know some downside risk as well. Yeah, I have a question for you. Do do you drive a uh over 6,000 pound vehicle and make sure you get that credit. <laughs> no, man, honestly, it's funny you say that. Cause like, as I've started putting out content about tax strategies and, and having a bunch of inbounds, I'm really not that aggressive with, with pretty much anything that I do. Um, you know, I, I think the real estate professional status is just eye opening to people because of its potential scale and impact, but it's not really like we take, you know, we document all of my wife's time extremely well. She actually spends well more than 750 hours on real estate. And uh, I think for the most part, like we're actually quite conservative on all of that. So no, to answer your question, I, I don't drive um, an SUV that I write off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. There's, there's so many of these things. And I, I think it's coming back to the one of the things you said in the beginning that the the tax code is really an incentive code. I'm yeah. sure, I think it would, it probably was uh, Tom Wheelwright that used to say that is yeah. he, he would kind of intro by saying, 
look, there's only like six rules where you actually, where they actually are taking that are actually like, a, you know, taking cash. And then yeah. the whole rest of the book, thousands of pages is just incentives to pay less than like the top line rate, basically. <laughs> No, you nailed it, man. It's that's verbatim from the book. And um, yeah, like I said, it, it was eye opening for me the first time I thought about it. And when you actually kind of break it down, like why, how does this work? It's like the government wants to incentivize job creation and housing for people, right? Because that's like what's core to the success of our country. And so how does that actually play out in the tax code? Well, if you're an entrepreneur and you own your own business, there's a lot of advantages to that in the tax code, right? Because you're creating jobs. And if you're a real estate developer, a real estate professional, if you invest in real estate, there's a lot of advantages for that as well. So that's the rationale behind it. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. So do you think like everyone should just go right out and open a business, open an LLC right now if they're American and just start, you know, kind of writing stuff off in a, a small way and you know, see what happens? I don't. I mean, realistically, you actually don't even need a legal entity to um, claim a you know business write-off. I mean, if you're a sole proprietor, that's a that's a business and it's just mm -hmm. not formally, you know, through an LLC. But uh, that's kind of a misconception that you need an LLC to, to write stuff off. So, you know, I don't. I think more importantly for me is I actually really do believe in, you know, entrepreneurship in the truest sense. Like I think Anyone, even if you have a full-time job, can be pursuing something on the side in whatever capacity makes sense for you. If, if you only have five hours a week and a thousand bucks of extra cash, well, then, you know, maybe you should start writing and, and productizing your knowledge and, um, you know, eventually maybe sharing some of your thoughts about things that you're learning in your day job and seeing if it resonates with other people and can help other people. And if it does, well, then maybe you can charge for consulting or coaching or for selling a course or something like that. If you have more money, you could look into buying a website like we've been talking about and borrowing money to do that from a lender. Um, I just really think, you know, a lot of people are fairly complacent in, in their day-to-day -day jobs and they just assume that entrepreneurship is, is out of reach, but um, I really don't think it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I, I think you kind of, you must have to think a lot about who you want your audience to be because I feel like you can talk to early stage entrepreneurs <laughs> at, the, at the same level that you can talk to like multimillionaire business owners and, and stuff like that. Yeah, man. If any of your readers or listeners are, are resonating, let me know because I'm, uh, I'm super new to this kind of sharing insights. It's been literally three months and um, yeah, I'm struggling candidly with kind of what do I want my, my focus to be. Um, you know, my website, wealth2.com, well squared is, uh, very focused for kind of high earners. And, um, frankly, that's kind of broad. <laughs> a lot of people make a lot of money in a lot of different ways. So, uh, I think it, it resonates for sure, but, you know, I think at the same time there's opportunity to be more specific. So yeah, it's something I'm, I'm trying to navigate. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think, how could we potentially apply some of this stuff to a digital nomad or an American expat? So say you're American, but maybe you're living abroad. Mm -hmm. um, people might think, oh, the, the, these types of exceptions, these are only for people that live full time in the US, but maybe there's some that, that can apply to expats as well. 
Yeah, man. I mean, I'd be honest. I think you probably know uh, some of the application even better than I do. I, I don't personally know too much about um, how expats have to handle the tax uh, liability to the states. But um, with regard to kind of the short-term rental thing, I mean, the way I understand it is pretty straightforward, right? If it's seven days or less, the average stay um, at your property, you have to spend over 100 hours on it in a year and you do more than anyone else. Well, that should qualify as a business activity and um, you should be able to use that to write off uh, the losses um, from the depreciation on it. So I don't know how that does or doesn't apply to an expat or, um, you know, somebody domestically, the difference is there, but mm -hmm. I don't see why it wouldn't apply. Yeah. And so this would be your principal residence. Does it have to be the principal or secondary residence? Could you do it in an LLC? Uh, yeah, my understanding, and again, this is probably slightly outside my scope, but it can't be your primary residence. I think it has to be an investment property. Um, okay. So, which would make sense because it's a business, not, you know, something that you're just, um, you know, living in and, and writing off. Okay. No, yeah, that makes sense. So you, uh, you have the, a business where you have an investment property, uh, you're writing off depreciation. I really wonder if it could, if you could buy property internationally as an American and write off the depreciation. Like, let's just say you bought a place in Mexico. You live in San Diego. You could definitely get some Mexico stuff going on. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I, I wonder yeah. how this stuff applies. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's really fascinating, but I'm sure I just read a guy. Oh, uh, uh, no, I think he was talking about. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, one of the guys I, I'm friends with on Twitter, Alan Corey, um, his handles at real estate maxi M-A-X-I. Um, okay, yeah. He wrote a cool thread on February 28th <clears throat> about um, six countries. You can buy a house for under 280K. And I mean, you probably, I'm sure your audience knows all about this, but he highlighted some crazy cool spots where you can find some really inexpensive uh, real estate. And uh, I don't know, I don't know if you, you would find it interesting, but there's like Greece, St. Kitts, Portugal, St. Lucia, Granada, yep. Dominica, all these places like under 250K for a pretty dope spot. Hey everybody, hey everybody. Quick break from the podcast to tell you about Language Blend, the best new way to learn Spanish. Language Blend was co-founded by Jake Nomada, friend of the podcast, decade of experience in Latin America, and Jake and his team, they put everything into this program that they wish they had in terms of how to level up quickly with your Spanish language skills. Because the faster that you can get conversationally fluent in Spanish, the better the experience that you're going to have in Latin America. So go to languageblend.com for more information. Yeah, so I mean, we, we, we talk about a lot of the strategies that, that apply to expats. Um, I, I would actually love to get your thoughts on, you could easily just get Mexican residency, man, because I think you just have to show uh, a couple thousand bucks of earned income or a bank statement, and you could get uh, a second residency in Mexico. You could, uh, with with no investment, just by showing means uh, for like less than a thousand bucks to apply, uh, get a temporary residency permit, no downside, no uh, tax implications necessarily. Like, oh. have you ever thought about this type of stuff? <laughs> no, man, you're uh, 
You're educating me now. I, uh, <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that, to be honest with you. I've been to Mexico like seven or eight times in my life, despite living in San Diego for most of it. But uh, yeah, didn't know that. Yeah, well, it's just something to think about. I, I was thinking maybe uh, the next thing we could talk about is just walk through those seven advanced tax strategies. Uh, we don't have to go too in depth because I know it's a lot to cover, but just to make sure you know we're putting things in people's minds about what's possible because we haven't even talked about a bunch of them yet. So maybe just real quick. So starting with number one was the backdoor Roth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a cool one. I mean, <clears throat> I would say that's probably on the, the line of the uh, most impactful or from a one to 10 of, you know, 10 being the most impactful. It's lower on there, probably a two or three. Um, but essentially the backdoor Roth is just a slight workaround, hundred percent legal. Um, as far as I understand to, uh, just be able to contribute to a Roth IRA. If your household income or individual income is above the limits. And so like, who would want to do this? Well, you know, the, the benefit of a backdoor of a Roth IRA is you put post-tax dollars. So dollars you've already paid tax on into an account, and then it grows tax-free and you get it tax-free on the back end. And so if you're making like 160K, let's say, and you're an individual, technically you'd be making too much money to put into that. But realistically, like your marginal tax rate at 160K isn't that bad. Uh, and you very well could be making way more than that later in your life. And it would just behoove you to pay the tax at, at now, right? And get it into a, a backdoor Roth. So, so that's Roth, sort of time Roth to do it. Is, Roth is post-tax and yeah. then a, a standard IRA is pre-tax? That's right. That's right. So pre-tax would be tax deductible today, but then you pay tax when you take the money out of it. And then right. Roth is opposite. Okay. And obviously both kind of have like a slew of benefits, right? You can uh, borrow against this to buy a primary house, I think, stuff like that. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of details, but the TLDR between a Roth and a, a traditional is just where you kind of see tax rates going in the future, both on a personal, but then macro level. So in other words, if you think like in the future when you retire and you take the money out, the tax rates will be higher than, than they are now, well, then you probably want to pay the tax now, get it into so, a Roth. So I have a question for you about the, the Roth and yeah. the backdoor Roth, because let's just say you're applying all these like all these crazy perks that we're talking about in this episode, right? The real estate stuff, whatever. You could potentially deduct yourself down to like zero income tax, right? Or or like a low single digit percentage, let's say. Yeah. Like less, like less than 10%. Wouldn't it then when you're investing in the Roth now, it's at that kind of like low rate, right? Versus. Yeah. Correct. So if you can get your, your, I think it's, yeah, your AGI um, down below uh, the, the, the level you need to invest in a Roth, well, then it makes sense to do it most of the time. Yeah. Cause like if your effective tax rate is just like maybe 5% cause you have so many deductions from all this stuff, like you might not have that opportunity in the future and it is kind of one or the other, right? hundred percent. Yeah, you're right. That's cool. Let's move on, I guess, to uh, opportunity zone. So what, what is an opportunity zone exactly? So an opportunity zone <clears throat> is like a um, designated zip code. There's about 8,300 8, of them, I want to say, in the United States. This legislation was put in place not too long ago. I, I couldn't tell you the exact year. 
Um, but effectively, the government put it in place to incentivize investment in, um, you know, for lack of a better term, economically distressed or poor areas. And so if you invest in an opportunity zone, you get a number of benefits. The primary one, or the first one, I should say, is that you don't pay tax on whatever you invest in an opportunity zone until 2026. So they call that the tax deferral piece of it. So you eventually will pay if I, if I put like, you know, 50 grand into it, I would eventually pay tax on that, but through an opportunity zone, I don't pay that for three more years. And then anything that any bit of growth on that 50 K that is in the opportunity zone, all of that growth is tax free. So as long as you, as long as you hold it for 10 years. So if you hold whatever and, property and you're you buying in, a zip code, no, no, you're buying a property in a zip code. Okay. 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 Yeah. Sorry. So it's just like, if you buy a house yeah, or exactly. whatever, any kind of property that's in one of these zip codes. Correct. Correct. Okay. But here's the key cool. with opportunity zone investing. Two things. One is this only applies to capital gains. So the reason that I learned about this and when it was applicable for me, right, is when we sold our business, we had a big capital gain. So part of it, I invested in an opportunity zone fund. I'll explain about that in a sec, but we put it into an opportunity zone fund. And so now that capital gain, we won't pay tax on until 2023 or sorry, 2026. And then beyond that, all of our gain is tax free as long as it stays in that opportunity zone fund for 10 years and that's 10 years from today. So 2033. So it's a very long-term investment. And again, it's only for capital gains where this is like very interesting though, is for short-term capital gains. So if you're somebody who likes to do a lot of trading, whether it's crypto or stocks, right. And you have a high income, if you're doing taxes, right. <laughs> or legally, then if you sell a position in like a stock in under a year of holding it, and you had a gain, well, that gain is a short-term gain, capital gain, and that's mm -hmm. taxed as ordinary income at your marginal tax rate. Mm -hmm. And so this is where that becomes really interesting because it's like, oh, wow, instead of paying 40% tax or whatever today, throw it into an opportunity zone fund, pay that in, in three years. In a sec, I can explain why that, that's not that big a deal, but pay that in three years and then keep it in there for 10 years and then you won't pay any tax on, on the gain from there. Um, and the reason that we chose to invest in a fund rather than in just like a specific property is because opportunity zone legislation is constantly evolving and slightly confusing. And it's just way easier to find sponsors, right? General partners who have, you know, are raising big funds to invest in opportunity zone funds and then let them handle all of that. And so that's what we did. Okay. And then, so we talked about, uh, the real estate professional status is number three when we already went into that. So maybe we can skip that for now. Uh, small business deductions. We touched on it a bit, but do you want to kind of like walk through, I, I know you'd be able to give us the perfect like 80, 20 to small business deductions for the average business guy. Yeah, no, it, it's funny. Cause we're going through this thread. I'm like, dude, the 80, 20 is this thread. <laughs> um, but the, the, the thread basically says that the key ones to think about if you own a small business are the home office deduction. Um, that's a like my understanding is that one is one of the higher kind of audit risk ones. And I personally don't I don't know if I've even used it, so I, I can't really comment too much about it. But it's a very commonly cited one. 
I mean, automotive, you know, Vance, you alluded to the SUV part, but the more common one is just like, if you use your car for work, you can write off, um, based on mileage, um, travel and hotels, obviously, uh, education meals. This is all kind of standard stuff. Um, the key with it, right. Is just a, it has to actually be a business use. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not going here advocating for, um, bending the rules, right? Like if you're buying something, you know, if you're buying a course online to learn SEO, right? Like I would argue that's a deductible business expense if your business is an internet business, right? But if you're just buying something completely not related to anything that you own, it's probably not deductible. So it has to be related is, to what is you're this actually for, doing. Is this stuff all uh, exclusively for people with sole proprietorships? No, no, this applies to any any legal entity, sole prop being one, LLC, S Corp, C Corp, doesn't really matter. But you need certain... some sort of structure, right? If you're just a normal guy, like working in working for a company, working at the bank, you, you don't have a business to Correct. do these small business deductions. Correct. That's right. And uh, yeah, a, a, a business, um, a sole prop would normally, right, to, to make this correct, at a minimum, a sole prop should have an EIN which would allow them to open up a separate business banking account. Right. So if you don't want to do a legal entity like an LLC, but you want to, you know, legitimize your side hustle or whatever you want to call it at a very minimum, you should have an EIN, which is I think really free or inexpensive to get and then open up a business checking account and make sure that all of the, your, you know, costs are coming out of that. Cause right. Like at the end of the day, you got to make, this needs to be for a business, not just for whatever the heck you're doing for fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the, that's the, the taking action piece of it. People is just go get a separate EIN for your home business, sole proprietorship, whatever. And then, you know, you can start taking advantage of a couple of these really cool deductions around travel, et cetera. You also need to document, right? This gets back to like, I was going to ask you about this because you're, 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 I'm sure you're like a nerdy documenter too. So can you walk us through this? Yeah, we just use Expensify. It's a common app. Um, take a picture of the receipt, put the actual business purpose, who's with you that's in the business when you're doing it, the date, the amount, all that stuff, and then keep those for, I mean, I think the actual statutes say you have to keep them for like seven years. I don't know if that's exactly right, but um, definitely keep them. And uh, yeah, it, this is stuff too that I would just say like, at a minimum, like it's just important to, to do it right. Like you don't want to just kind of assume that everything's fine because all this stuff could be looked at one day and, mm -hmm. uh, it's better to just make sure that you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's. And so, and again, to do so to cross the T's dot the I's, you take a picture of the receipt, you have like an Excel sheet somewhere online where you upload, I guess, like the day, the amount. And I guess maybe the business function, you say like business dinner with investor, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Business rationale. I think, I don't know, all of this is Googleable, but it's like uh, to qualify as a business expense has to have a business purpose, has to have who was there, how much, the date, picture of the receipt. I think those are kind of the, the main things. And so you're, you're doing this all in Expensify? Correct, yeah. Okay. And do you maintain like a separate Excel sheet on like, on like Google, Google docs or something like that, where you're like recording all your expenses? 
No, so Expensify just keeps track of it all, and then, then I can like send a PDF of, of all the pictures or all the receipts with all that categorization I just mentioned. And then otherwise, anything we spend that's business-related is already going to be on our business credit card, which is obviously being paid off by our business checking account. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm not I'm not doing anything crazy here. I'm just basically creating a business and um, you know spending money yeah, for yeah. it. People don't know how to be this organized. So I think this is more valuable. Like it's one of those things where it's like obvious to you, but incredible to others. So cool. Uh, and then I guess moving on, pay your kids a salary. This is a fun one. Number five. Yeah, this isn't that. I mean, I linked someone else's thread. I definitely don't take credit for this one. It's clever. But um, the other thread in the chain does a good job of explaining exactly what the requirements are. But TLDR is... Um, you can pay your, your kids a salary, um, assuming they meet certain thresholds and age and what they actually do, right? Um, but it's up to, he wrote here, 13000 I want to say, which is, you know, just a deduction in your business income. And then the cool part really is if you take that deduction and then you put it into a Roth IRA account for them, <laughs> because then you're just stacking it for them. It's like this awesome little savings hack. You get a tax credit on it or you get a tax write-off and now you're building a nice little tax-free account for them. So I thought it was a really cool idea. So I included it. That's so funny. Okay. Uh, number six, uh, donor advised fund. To be honest, I've known very little about this one. Um, I just needed to get seven and <laughs> I thought that this was a cool one too, but I don't know anything more than what is literally written right there. Um, but effectively, if you are very charitable and want to give away um, your income, then the donor advised fund is a great way to minimize your tax on, on the dollars that you give away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you ever looked at like uh, how you can like, you know, buy the wing of a hospital or university <laughs> and kind of write that off a little bit? I haven't. <laughs> sounds quite clever, but no, I haven't done that. Yeah. That's like the, it's like the Andrew Carnegie strategy a little bit, um, but it's 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 uh, it, that's like the the final innings of, of your business career. I feel, yeah, um, maybe. All right, so number seven, uh, short term rental strategy, which we talked about. Uh, do you do you by the way like have a, an active Airbnb going? Uh, I don't, but funny enough, my brother does, and so I'll probably be learning a lot through his experience this year, um, and. You know, candidly, I, I haven't done that one, so I can't. That's why I think in terms of some of the nuances and technicalities, I'm, I'm much more well-versed in the real estate professional status piece of it. Um, but I know for sure that it's it, a lot of people are using it and it, it, it works. So it's interesting. And so how do you see the landscape right now in 2013 in terms of like just where interest rates are at and it, like our is it would you even advise people to invest in real estate at this point yeah i mean i think real estate it's something that you frankly can always be investing in if you are doing it responsibly and you kind of have the right framework that you're going about it um you know i do spend a lot of time now as more of a passive limited partner in, in real estate syndications because frankly i don't want to spend my time managing tenants and that whole thing but, you know, the, the more traditional route, if you want to be a long-term rent, if you want long-term renters or even short-term rentals is just to know your cash flow, right? You got to know, you know, based on today's interest rates 
and the loan you can get. How much does it cost? You know, factoring in a repair budget, factoring in property taxes, all of it. How much does it cost to service the piece of real estate? And can your rental income comfortably cover that? And uh, the answer is yes. Then in a lot of circumstances, you know, it makes a lot of sense to buy real estate. And I think one misconception about, you know, high interest rates, that's just, I think, kind of off base is one of the benefits of buying a property when the interest rates are high is that if you can cover the cash, you know, if you can cover the mortgage and all the costs with a high interest rate, well, then when interest rates inevitably fall again, I don't know when that's going to be, but when they do, well, then now you can refinance and your monthly payment's going to be even lower. And so you'll be able to cover your payments even easier then, or you can sell it in that environment because the value of the house is probably going to be worth a lot more when interest rates go down. So yeah, it's a common misconception like that real estate's inaccessible right now because um, again, if you can cover your payments, it's it's always accessible. Dude, that's a, a really good way of thinking about it. I really like that framework. Yeah, I've uh, I, we started in, in residential real estate. So like the first three properties I think we bought were single family houses. And I think it's really good. I mean, for a lot of people, it's a great way intro and a great way to start start building wealth. But, um, you know, once you've, uh, if you have other areas to invest your time that are a higher ROI, then, um, I, I really enjoy investing alongside other general partners, um, and have, you know, you mentioned some of the guides on my website, but I think the real estate syndication guide that I wrote is maybe the best one on there, just full of pretty much everything I've learned and how to do it. And, um, you, you do need some money to start investing in real estate syndications, probably like 25 or 50 grand to get started. But again, if you have wealth, I think it's a good way to diversify your portfolio out of just stocks and bonds. Okay. Yeah, Denny. So if you're saying like, this is the one you're most excited about, we haven't even really touched upon it. Uh, so what, what exactly is a, a syndication? Um, a syndication is... Um, this is the way I explained it in the thread. If you think about um, a startup, right? Everybody understands that like CEO is the one doing all the work and they raise capital from investors. Well, in a syndication to, to, you know, to build a business, well, in a syndication, it's kind of a similar thing, right? The GP or general partner is the CEO. They're the ones doing everything, coming up with the business plan, operating and LPs are the investors the limited partners, they really just write a check and then sit back and do nothing and let the GP do all of the work. And so the GP obviously gets more of the upside if things go well, but the LPs don't have to do the work. And realistically over the course of, you know, if, if you invest alongside the right syndicators, you can do really well as an LP too. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, much better returns than like a 7% per year in an index fund. So um, the key is obviously partnering with the right syndicators, knowing how to ask the right questions, basically knowing how to do a lot of the work yourself, right? If you could be a, a syndicator or a GP, then you know how to ask questions to them. And so for me, a lot of my last year since having the exit has been kind of meeting different GPs. I've invested in probably seven or eight different ones now and comparing them to one another and, and just figuring out who actually knows what they're talking about. 
Mm -hmm. And so in real terms, this is a, a real estate developer or like a flipper guy. And uh, he's building relationships with LPs so that the next time he sees like a small apartment building or something, you know, he's got uh, like on deck capital. Yeah. I mean, there's, and just like a lot of things, like there's a range in size. You have G syndicators and GPs that are super small, you know, husband and wife type people, right. That just own like two apartment buildings and like, that's kind of their thing. And then you have huge firms with like hundreds of employees deploying billions of dollars of capital as syndicators mm -hmm. as well. So there's okay. a spectrum. I know, you know, for me, I'm trying to find maybe not the mom and, you know, the husband and the wife that have done one syndication before, but also people who aren't so institutional that they're getting all their money from, you know, endowment funds and stuff like that. Um, so I'm trying to find more of those kind of lower market syndicators. And, and what's the benefit of going for the smaller syndicators versus institutional? I think the main benefit is you can find obviously more attractive returns um, because they're just scrappier. There's just less, uh, they're able to be a little bit more nimble and realistically, they're probably slightly more risk that you're taking on, but um, you know, it's something I'm personally comfortable with. And um, yeah, I think that's, and, and the other, I think the advantage is to a certain extent, like some of the best opportunities don't really exist for institutional capital, right? If you, have a billion dollars you need to deploy like that definitely limits what types of deals at what size you can do right because it's like you only have so many time to deploy that capital so there's a real advantage to maybe the guy that's raising 15 20 million to buy a two or three hundred unit apartment building like that might just be too small for a really a billion dollar fund but for the right syndicator it's a perfect opportunity mm-hmm and, and I assume at the institutional clients, like they're not even going to want a $50,000 check. So you have to find people to whom like that small of a check is meaningful to. Well, I mean, honestly, the, that's what I was saying. I, I think like, you know, I've, I'm invested with a fund. They own a, they did about 900 million of real estate last year and uh, they have small checks. I think they take up to, to you know, as low as 25,000. Now, I think a big part of that is they are looking at who's investing with them. <laughs> like, does this person, are they younger or do they have a high income and a potential to invest with us more in the future? Right. It's a very relational based thing as is everything it seems. Mm -hmm. So if they feel like, you know, you're maybe you don't have a ton of money right now, but you're moving in the right direction. And perhaps in a couple of years, you could write a 600, $700,000 check. Uh, I think people are open to, you know, lower investment size. I've never really seen something under 25 grand. If you want to do that, then it, it's mainly like Fundrise and Yield Street and those like crowdfunding sites online. Yep. Um, but for private syndicators, yeah, 25 is kind of the smallest I've seen. I imagine like when Wealthfront came out and all these alternative platforms, you were all over that. I mean, I, I definitely checked it out, but I like... You know, once you do a little bit of work, um, I was, you know, proactively trying to network with other off-market syndicators. You know, I, I just think the deals there are way more interesting and you can get on, a, you know, I get on a phone, phone call and I'm face-to-face -face with the guy who's taking my money and the guy who's like responsible for it. Right. And I, I, I like that because if anything goes wrong, at least I like 
have someone I can call and say what's going on and get a real answer. If, I, if you go through one of those big platforms, right, you're just a yeah. number. Got it. Got it. You like the leg breaking factor. <laughs> I'm not a hard ass, but yes, I, I like to be able to know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, and so, but what makes you so attracted to this uh, syndication business model versus, because we're talking about so many other really attractive things in terms of, you know, buying yeah. online businesses with SBA loans and this and that. Like we've talked about some really cool stuff. So why is just finding these like tiger cat flippers and uh, like, like why is that the most exciting one? Maybe walk us through a dealer or just kind of expand a bit. Yeah, I think generally the framework is just that um, I believe in sort of managing your personal investments, both your time and your in your capital, kind of like, a, you know, a holding company where you have a mix of very low risk investments with very high return, high risk investments. And so, you know, for me, real estate in general is just one of the most low risk um, places to put your capital. And if you compare it to like the stock market, well, the stock market doesn't have these kind of tax benefits that we've talked about over the last hour that real estate does. And real estate's a tangible thing that just they're not making more real estate, right? It is, you know, it's easier to kind of get your head around that. So for a lot of reasons, I like investing in real estate. I think it's low risk. It produces current income, right? And we, I don't know if we talked about that, but all of these syndications, much like if you owned a rental property and you had rent checks coming in, same concept, just, you know, on a big apartment building, right? Which is actually better, right? Because apartment building has hundreds of units. So if one of them's empty, it's not going to hurt your vacancy. You have one house and no one's in it, you're screwed. So that's kind of, it's just a low risk way to allocate capital in a way that creates right. tax benefits. And there's so many ways to income. do it. You can buy REITs and stuff like that, but like... I guess uh, with with this one where you're you're doing a syndication, when they have depreciation on the bigger building, do you do you get to bring in a piece of that uh, onto your personal income statement, or are there yes. any cool cool tax benefits to this? No, yeah, as long as your syndicator is running a cost seg, which ninety percent of them will be, because they should know what that is and be doing it anyway. Um, the, yeah, you'll you'll get a loss on your K one is what it is, and. Um, for the most part, that doesn't apply to active income or earned income, but it does apply to passive income. So if you have income from other passive investments, you can offset that with losses from, from your K1. Got it. Got it. And I know you got to get going soon. Uh, one thought I had was, dude, like all, all these crazy strategies, a lot of them come down to the, the cost seg, the cost segmentation. And uh, I think that's one of my biggest takeaways from the episode is that that's a uh, an underratedly powerful tool. Yeah, for sure. And that one is super like intuitive. I mean, if you just think about it, like the, the concept of depreciation is if you have a building, it goes down over time. Like it's just not going to be worth the same every day. So the way that they capture that loss is depreciation, but it really doesn't make sense to say every part of a building wears down on the same timeline. Right. And so if, if you don't run a cost seg, and you just use 27 and a half years for residential. I believe it's 39 years for commercial. But if that's what you do, that's kind of like an inaccurate way to actually do it. And so, yeah, a cost segregation is, is, is actually just the right way 
to do depreciation. If you ask any accountant really that knows what they're talking about or is familiar with them, they will tell you that, oh yeah, a cost say is just the right way to think about depreciation. Really where the real estate professional status and the STR strategy become so much more effective, but also so different is with the uh, bonus depreciation rules, right? Where we talked about earlier, all the five and 15 year property can be depreciated at once in the year of acquisition. And that's not something that's going to last forever. In fact, it's gradually going to get faded out over the next five years, unless something in Washington changes that. And that's a direct result of the Tax and Jobs Act or whatever the 2017 legislation was that allowed for that to happen. So that's not something that stays forever, but a cost seg is something that's going to always be there. So here's my question is, so why, why isn't everyone just running around looking for old ass buildings and then going, <laughs> we're going to cost seg this old building, like advance that shit, five year depreciation. Like, can't, can't everyone just go do that? Yeah. So really important question. So some of the drawbacks, right, of this and yeah, we'd have to do a whole nother episode on how this all plays out. But the, the main drawback is that with depreciation, there's what's called a recapture tax if you sell the property. So if you take all of this loss, right, because you depreciated it and you use that to you know, reduce your taxable income, that's awesome. But if you then two years later go out and you sell that building, you're going to have a big gain, right, uh-huh. on, on your tax return. If you didn't, you know, if you didn't do a 1031 exchange, if you didn't have other losses to offset the gain, right? Those are the main ways to avoid this. But if you don't do those things, then you have to pay tax at your ordinary income rate on whatever the gain is. Does that make sense? Right. So that's like the main drawback, right? Is that the, the, the easy way to think about it is if you're going to use these kind of strategies, then the capital you're putting into real estate for the most part will remain in real estate. Um, you can do things like refinancing and accessing the capital through debt. But again, like the basic premise here, and, and if there's any quote unquote drawback, it's that if you take a big loss through this accelerated depreciation, and then you want to sell that property and you don't 1031, you don't find any way to reduce your gain. Well, then you're going to pay that tax. Again, you're just going to you know pay it later. Um, still, again, just to be clear, still always makes sense for me or usually makes sense in a lot of circumstances, um, but maybe it doesn't always. And it really depends on each person's unique investment portfolio. Well said, well said. You know, once again, neither of us are tax professionals. We just uh, enjoy nerding out about this stuff. And <laughs> there, there's obviously a lot more uh research people have to do, but it's cool that we're kind of opening up these new avenues to people, things people haven't thought of. And that's why they need to subscribe to your newsletter to be made aware of like all these cool schemes when they come along. I don't <laughs> want to call them schemes, but cool, cool um, entrepreneurial ideas. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate that. And yeah, like you said in the beginning, it's wealth, uh, the number two.com. And then you'll see my newsletter throughout, but every Saturday I send something no more than five minutes, usually like three or four minute read, um, sometimes tax stuff, maybe a quarter of the time tax stuff about, you know, the other three quarters, business growth, those kind of things that I think people will find interesting. So yeah, check it out. 
Yeah. And, and you know what I like about your background and in, in just in terms of being at the confluence of a couple different uh, industries in terms of the internet and the real estate and this and that is whatever kind of the next thing that comes out is in, in terms of business ideas. I know that you're going to be all over it. You're going to be examining it and you're going to be able to translate that into common English, like really get to the the core of what is what does this effectively mean for people and how can they kind of structure their affairs and, and kind of being a good interpreter. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I, I really do. It's um, it's the goal when I'm trying to write something. I'm, I'm trying to explain it to an eighth grader. I found that's kind of the happy medium is maybe a little smarter than a fifth grader, but not too smart for a college grad. So that's the goal. Sick, sick. Uh, yeah, man, keep, uh, t- you know, take this time to uh, promote your your Twitter, the website, uh, newsletter, all that stuff. Yeah, no, we talked about the newsletter. Uh, my Twitter is at it's Danny underscore V. Um, super new there too, just since January, but it's been fun to connect with people. I think, yeah, that's how we met. And um, probably writing two, three threads a week if I can. <laughs> they take a while to write, but doing the best I can there. And um, that's pretty much it right now. Absolutely. Uh, this has been another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Again, my guest today was Danny V over at wealthsquare.com. That's wealth2.com. Uh, everything will be in the show notes as well. Uh, hi- highly recommend Danny uh, as being a smart guy in, in this stuff. So thanks again, man. Yeah, man. Take it easy.